Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 116. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. As you might be able to hear, I have a cold today, so I don't sound quite as clear as usual, and my throat feels pretty scratchy. So as a result, I'm not going to talk too much in this episode, but I'm excited to share with you that I interviewed a very special person, Sarah Payton, who is the author of Your Resonant Self and does a ton of work on getting connected with your true inner gentle self. Sarah Payton is an international speaker and facilitator who has a passion for weaving together neuroscience knowledge and experiences of healing that unify people with their brains and bodies. Sarah is someone who has a very gentle way of speaking that is kind of a metaphor for the way she is teaching us to be more embodied with our empathic self. Sarah offers healing experiences of hearing ourselves and others deeply using the precision and resonant language that come alive in the long-term study of nonviolent communication. Sarah's newest book, Your Resonant Self, is about how you can synthesize the latest developments in neuroscience, trauma treatment, and the power of empathy into an effective healing method that rewires your brain and restores your capacity for self-love emotional regulation, and well-being. It's kind of hard to really grasp what she's talking about without hearing it from her. I know I'm not doing such a great job explaining it, but when you hear from Sarah, you'll understand, and she lets you know how to find her guided meditations, which are very special. She also has courses and webinars, so Sarah is a very gifted and fascinating person. And I think you're going to love 
listening to our interview. So let's go ahead and get started. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview with the author of the book, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. My guest today is Sarah Payton. Sarah, thanks so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Well, thank you, Laura. I'm very happy to be here. I'm really happy that you're here too. And your book is really beautiful and interesting and exciting. So I can't wait for our listeners to hear about it. Oh, thank you. Yes, this book has been quite a journey. Yeah. So let's just start off by, if you would, can you tell our listeners more about yourself and your work? Sure. Happy to introduce myself. I am a nonviolent communication certified trainer with a deep interest in the way that language changes the brain and in deep, deep interest in how research shows that the way we talk to ourselves is intimately connected with the trauma that we've experienced and the healing that we experience, and in particular, the healing relationships that we experience. So um, I travel all over the world, and I talk, and I teach, and I write about trauma and language and what kinds of language take us into fluid places where we're resilient and whole? And what kinds of language use kind of cut us up into parcels and, and leave us in the same place where we started? That's, um, that's a little bit of an overview. What, what else can I tell you here? Well... Can I ask you a little bit more about nonviolent communication? Because I know many people may not be familiar with that. Sure. Nonviolent communication is a way of thinking about using language to create the maximum amount of connection. To really, I don't know if you've ever seen, there are many teachers who teach that when we first meet each other, what's important is how we look. For about the first 5, 10, 15 minutes, we're really really noticing how everybody looks, what clothes are they wearing, how have they done their hair, whether or not they're wearing makeup. All of these things give us some ground to go on. And then very quickly we start to notice uh, what, what people are saying, and then we notice what people are doing, how, what their behavior is like. And then we start, as we get more and more acquainted with them, we start to really notice what they care about most deeply. So nonviolent communication is a way of kind of beginning to focus on, from the very beginning, what do people care about most deeply? What, how, is, how is love a motivating factor for someone? How, how is a need for trust really driving them? What, how, are, they in a, are they in a reactive space because respect is so important to them? And Marshall Rosenberg was the man who created and wrote about and traveled all over the world talking about nonviolent communication. He has a book, The Language of Life, if this is something that's interesting you, uh, a nice introduction. And then this book that I've written, Your Resonant Self, is very much focused on how to take that work into the internal world and into relationship with the brain's automatic voice, with the brain's default mode network as the scientists call it. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love how you made the connection between your work with nonviolent communication and what you're doing in this book. 
Thank you for that. Yeah. So you are talking a lot about trauma, empathy, compassion, connection, and neuroscience research. So how does your book fit in with a neuroscience perspective of healing? There's a field of research that's that's called a couple of different things. Some people call it interpersonal neurobiology, and some people call it relational neuroscience, and some people call it cognitive neuroscience, and some of it comes under the label of social neuroscience. It's the it's what we've started to do. It's what scientists have started to do with fMRI machines when they're thinking about relationship, and they started to wonder. Everybody got these fMRI machines. You know, the university's got these fMRI machines in the late 90s and started to devise experiments where they were looking at brains and they started to realize, I wonder what we can tell from fMRI machines about how people have relationships and about how brains affect one another. So um, it's, in my view, in this world where we worry about so much, we worry about the planet and we worry about politics and we worry about people's well-being and we worry about the um, human rights. But at the same time, we're living in a world that has this new study that allows us to cut right to the chase of acknowledging on every level how deeply we affect one another. So this, I think, is, is the lucky part of being alive at this point in time is that we get to look at what do brains do, really? How do we affect one another? How do we change each other? How does the way that I use language land for your brain? Mm. There's a neuroscientist at UCLA whose name is Matthew Lieberman, who's one of my favorite neuroscientists, who published an article that was all about how when we name emotions, we can see the amygdala, which is one of the, one of the centers of emotion in the human brain, we can see the amygdala calming. We can see the electrical activity in the amygdala falling by half when the correct emotion is named, an emotion that we're, that we're seeing on somebody's face or an emotion that we're, that we're experiencing. So, um, hmm. so we're even starting to be able to track things at this level of detail that language and the way we use it is... Um, I often think of language as uh, between two people, like between you and me, that the language is like the neurotransmitters, like we're all creating one huge human brain. And the way that we communicate with each other is language. And the kind of neurotransmitters that we send from one little human neuron to another human neuron change what's happening experientially for both neurons. Same thing in the brain, same thing between people. Wow. Got me thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things you talk about is the ability to both to be both experiencing something and holding the experience and how the concept of resonance and your resonant self, as the book is called, how that fits. Can you explain for our audience really what you mean by resonance in this context? I would love to thank you. Resonance in this context is a particular combination 
of warmth and precision that lets a person know that they have been understood. So if we're thinking about the original dyad with a mom and a baby, even before language happens, resonance is happening. Uh, There's beautiful research by Beatrice Beebe, another of my absolute favorites, who has looked in micro detail at the relationship between babies at the age of four months and their mothers. And what happens with facial expressions? How well and fluidly does the mother spend a micro moment of acknowledgement of the baby's emotional experience before the mother goes on to distraction or care or, you know. So if a baby's scared, the mom's face does a little scared face, of, like a, as if she were saying with her words, of course you're scared. That was a loud noise, wasn't it? Before moving to um, soothing or jostling or singing or doing whatever the other things are that she might do to bring comfort and care to the baby but that there are these micro moments of, of resonance even before language begins. And then, of course, my, my thought and writing is, uh, is mostly about how we do this with language. How do we, how do we catch one another? And what, what is shown, again, I just love this research now, it shows that what creates resilience, emotional resilience for children more than anything else, is this quality of warmth and understanding that is created in experiences of secure attachment. And that babies who have experiences of secure attachment have longer life expectancy because they internalize this experience of being resonated with. They carry it with them for the rest of their lives. Happily for those of us whose moms experienced more trauma than made them easily able to reflect us with these. Happily for us, these same pathways that catch resonance and that are changed and strengthened and made more robust and resilient by relationship, these pathways remain available for us throughout our lifespan as humans. They are the most changeable, the most neuroplastic, the most happy and willing to absorb new information of any of our neural pathways. So even though we're looking at, you know, this intense research that shows that children receive so much from secure attachment, that infants receive so much from secure attachment, it's also very hopeful research because the rest of us can begin to grow and change and experience new levels of, of warmth and safety within ourselves as we go on this path. Now you asked, I was sort of giving you the outside, the dyadic idea of resonance, this combination of warmth and precision. What happens in the internalization of it is that we actually begin to have two parts of our brain, an intentional part that's able to turn toward us with warmth and precision, and the emotional part of our brain that is having the emotional experience that needs to be held. So your resonant self is a, is a book-long invitation to growing and nurturing and nourishing the part of yourself that then can turn toward yourself with care and clear understanding and advocacy. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I just, I love what you're saying. I mean, 
<laughs> probably proving your point about how language can do so much to create connection that when you, the first half of that, when you were talking about secure attachment, I just like, my heart was like singing because, you know, it's so, it's so beautiful to see how good people can feel when they have secure attachment. And it's so hard when you didn't have it. And so many people did not have secure attachment. We know like 40 to 50% of people have secure attachment and the rest of us don't. So, but then the beautiful statement you made that it's okay if you didn't have secure attachment before, it's never too late. You can get that at any time and you can give it to yourself. Yeah. And it's so important to have some kind of model. Uh, therapy is such an incredible modality, you know, for humans. I, I love it that we as humans have therapy as an option. I was just looking at some work from Rachel Yehuda and, uh, and Ruth Laney is a chapter on PTSD, which showed that psychotherapy was the most effective tool for healing post-traumatic stress, which made me very happy because it's human to human interaction instead of drugs and instead of that we hope and wish would be able to heal brains. So I love it when we get uh, research that shows how important relationship is and how important healing relationship is. Yeah, exactly. That whole idea we're wired for connection. Exactly. Exactly. And I know there are many people who, who can't even afford therapy. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I wrote this book was so that there would be like a, a little package of recommendations and modeling and support and care that would be available for people who couldn't maybe stretch right in this moment to getting that, that warm and nurturing support that I want everybody in this world to have. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes therapy can truly be out of reach and also it can seem out of reach mm -hmm. and there can be a mis you know, really wondering how could this even help me? It's, I'm too far gone. You know, is it even possible for therapy to be helpful? So, mm. and also sometimes people have that mistrust, you know, very well founded mm -hmm. mistrust of humans. They're like, I'm not letting another human close to me. Are you kidding? So, yeah, right. it's nice to have other options to begin to, you know, invite and support and engage people. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, um, I have a lot of things I want to ask you about your book, but one of the, the things that you say with this book is that the brain has its own capacity for healing. And I know you've kind of alluded to that, but can you ex talk more about that? Yes. The, the, one of the precepts of interpersonal neurobiology is that brains are hungry for healing that they long to feel good and that they're reaching for any model that they can access that will help them to feel better. So they're looking for information. They're looking for education. They're looking for scraps of information. They're looking for moments of resonance. They're looking for brains are looking to be understood by other human brains. There's something so calming about the experience of, really being 
deeply understood and having that confidence in it that makes bodies relax. And, um, and so when I read this, this idea that Daniel Siegel and Bonnie Badenoch both put in their books about the idea that we are always available for healing, I started to think about, uh, and this is something I work with and think about a lot, what about when we're so scared that it's hard to, to, to reach for something new? Or what about when, um, this other incredible question, when to heal is to betray the self, like um, people who, um, I, I meet this often actually, that people have such a heart for the world in trouble that they don't even want to move forward emotionally without being able to take the whole world with them. Like it doesn't, there's something in them that's like, it's not fair for me to heal. I should not move forward. Sometimes it's a connection with the whole world. Sometimes it's a connection that they have a loyalty that they have to their parents who never got the support that they would have liked them to get. So I think um, part of the, the interesting experience of language is that with language, we can name all kinds of complex kind of traps that that stop people from the forward movement, from the integrating of, of new information about what is possible. And so, yeah, I'm, this is one of my areas of great interest. How do we name experience so that our bodies and nervous systems are freed from original contracts that we made that prevent us from having a sense that it's an integrity to heal. So, um, yeah, uh, I know that sort of is a little bit uh, of a side note to the question that you asked. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. But I see that too, that people will say, but what happened to me was nowhere near as bad as what so many other people go through. I, I often tell my clients who've experienced trauma, that every person who sits in my office who has experienced trauma will say, but what I went through was not that bad compared to what some people go through. No matter what it was, right. how severe the abuse or the multiple experiences that have just any, anybody objectively would say, oh my gosh, you've been through some incredibly painful things. And the person will say, it's nothing compared to what so many other people have suffered with. Yeah. What you're bringing out now is a little bit of the the two ways that people try to manage themselves. We can try to manage ourselves instrumentally with the part of our brain that functions instrumentally, which um, McGilchrist makes a very convincing argument is the left hemisphere. Or we can try to manage ourselves with self-regulation, with this turning towards the self with warmth and precision. And the qualities of the instrumental brain trying to manage us. It's a little bit like we're trying to run ourselves with our own internal robot instead of trying to run ourselves with our own internal warm, nurturing mother. So the internal robot, this instrumental part of the brain, the left hemisphere part of the brain, it, its qualities of, of, of understanding the world are to compare, 
to criticize, to deny, to dismiss, to minimize. And the idea that uh, other, everybody else has had, you know, other people have had it worse than me, I shouldn't complain, is a beautiful combination of, of instrumental uh, approaches to self-management. We're trying to calm ourselves down by minimizing what happened to us and by comparing ourselves to others instead of by turning towards the self with both warmth and precision. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. So a lot of the book talks about the different ways that we can use language to talk to ourselves because trauma fractures our internal voice. The experience of trauma, you had mentioned uh, before we started the call, Laura, that you were really interested in what this book says about trauma. So Mm -hmm. I'll take a little side road here. Thank you. We have two forms of memory. We have emotional memory and we have factual memory, uh, factual and autobiographical memory. So emotional memory is amygdala-centered. And the quality of learning that the amygdala is capable of is it's like superglue. It's like emotional superglue. And so what the amygdala does when we have a difficult experience is it takes and wraps every sensory and cognitive experience that's happening in the moment of the trauma and it glues it all together in a sort of a clump that remains in the brain. And whenever we get close to that memory of the trauma, then the energy and information runs right into the clump and we can get stuck there or or it's not exactly stuck. Stuck has this implication that we should be able to get out of it. Um, Instead, I'd like to say it's more like a, a a super magnet that pulls us in and there we are. Mm. We're in the super, the force of the super magnet. So we have, so we, and every different trauma that we experience creates a different clump. It doesn't create the same clump. So we get, we get this kind of lumpy experience of existing 
or a fractured experience of existing, where when we try to use our own automatic default network, the brain's default network, which everybody has and which is supposed to be like a social seamstress or a social tailor that's sitting in our brain and calmly sewing together our sense of what's happened before and what's coming next and what have we forgotten and how was that social interaction. Everybody has this and everybody's brain goes to this immediately with as little as one second of unfocused, unintentional brain use. So they used to think that this was a white noise. They'd put people in fMRI machines, they'd look at their brains, they'd have the moments in between giving them intentional activities, and everybody's brain would fuzz out. And they thought that this was like, for those of us who are old enough to remember the white noise on television sets, Mm -hmm. they had it on a channel that didn't have any broadcasting on it. They thought it was like the brain's white noise, this fuzz. And then they realized that this activity was identical for every person, that every person moved into this particular kind of the use of the brain when it wasn't being intentionally used. And they called this the brain's automatic, they called this the brain's uh, default mode network, DMN is what researchers call it. So the DMN, when we've had a lot of trauma, The seamstress tries to sew memory and anticipation and understanding and social interactions together. But every time the seamstress or this tailor hits the sense of self, it gets gets pulled into this magnetic uh, force that has shame and horror and self-criticism and self-hatred and self-loathing and it's like being pulled into hell. So people will do all kinds of things to try to avoid being in relationship with their own default network if they've been traumatized. For example, cigarettes. Cigarettes are remarkably effective at de- at actually popping us right out of the default network. Video wow. games. Yeah, video games are just as effective as cigarettes. They're the two most effective possibilities for getting the default network to turn off. And so, yeah, so what? one of the things that we're holding, I think, with the immense numbers of people who are very dependent on video games is that people are managing their default mode network. They're managing their own anxiety. They're managing their own inner world, which is fractured and incoherent and has these strange magnetic forces that pull us into shame or fear, or worry, or anxiety, or concern. And and so one of the beautiful things about beginning to move on this pathway of learning the skills and growing the neural networks that allow us to hold ourselves with warmth and precision is that we begin to actually physically transform the way that energy and information flow in the brain in response to trauma. And the other beautiful thing, of course, to mention about trauma, which is hugely hopeful again, is that the, the quality of the ever-present past that is, that is part of the trauma experience, that is part of the brain holding em- em- memory in the emotional memory circuits, is that happily, even though this gives us PTSD with intrusive memories, 
it also means that trauma is forever available to be healed, to be physically transformed from being held by the amygdala into uh, the movement into being held by the hippocampus, into the brain's factual and autobiographical and contextualized memory. So, for example, I was I was in Poland recently, and I was doing a little bit of work. And I was working with a man there who had had a really terrifying experience with a dog and he, when he was a little guy. And so we started out, we're talking about the experience with, with, the, with the dog, and we start to name the different things that were going on. So what were the parts of the memory that got super glued together? What, were the, what was the sound? What was the smell? What was the visual? Uh, where physically the proprioception, where was the body in space? This is one of the things the amygdala remembers in moments of trauma. And then we we did a time travel. We did a direct visiting of him in this moment, stopping the dog, staying connected with the little guy that he had been, making sure that we caught the qualities of his experience with words. What were the emotions? What were the longings? What were the micro moments of this experience? And, his, and just making sure to stay very connected to the body. You, you mentioned, Laura, that how important the body is to you. The body is so important. It is the nexus. It is the convergence point of past and present and future. And, so, and it is alive in those memories of trauma. It's part of what makes us available. For healing and transformation. So as we uh, as we connected with the little guy, made sure we were naming his experience, we were like, you know, would you like to leave this memory? You actually survived a whole lifetime after this experience of being uh, attacked by this dog, and and invited this little guy back to present time. And in the experience, then we said to the man, "How are you doing?" And he said, "Oh." For the first time, this is just a memory. This is just something that happened to me. And that is what people say when, we, when the movement is complete, when the memory ha- is no longer a clump that uh, would disrupt the work of the default mode network. Instead, it becomes smoothly and cleanly integrated with the larger experience of the life, and it becomes time-stamped instead of being live and ready to go and, uh, and to, to take us back through time in a single whiff of a dog odor or the sound of a dog barking. But how is this to hear, Laura? Am I talking about what you were hoping I would talk about? Well, even much more, much better than what I was hoping <laughs> or what I asked even, but, you know, and yes, answering my question. And, and while you were talking about that with the, the man's experience with the dog, I want to check with you if I'm understanding this correctly, because what came up for me is this is what we do in sensory motor psychotherapy as well, using the body. Yeah. The same thing that the, the trauma is processed, the place where a, a trauma was stuck for lack of a better word that had not been processed or metabolized by the body. It, moves and then it's just something that happened without the 
trauma response. So you're seeing exactly the same phenomenon. Exactly. Yeah. And I think all effective trauma therapy, whatever it's a, whatever the approach is, whether it's language-based, the way that I'm talking about, whether it's even more experientially, physically based, like the sensory motor and the um, somatic experiencing and Rosen method and um, Hakomi, all of these interesting methods that allow people to go in and connect with the body, have some verbal connection, have some relationship, allows for really successful transformation of, of trauma and the movement toward integration and wholeness. Yes, it's so, it's so incredible and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, as we can see from the research, you know, traditional psychotherapy as well. This is psychotherapy that doesn't even so much mention the body, but has that strong component of relationship. Yeah. Yes. So now I want to ask you another question to sort of expand on what you just said about the, the man and the dog. One thing that came to my mind when you were talking about that is that for some trauma survivors, I would say many trauma survivors, dissociation is a protection from feeling the sensations that are in the body. And when the person is attempting to be more grounded, it feels extremely unsafe. So it's like that kind of a little bit of a catch 22. Exactly. It's a catch 22 that they they need to be more grounded so they won't be experiencing their trauma. But yet when they get grounded and they're in their body, they feel all of the trauma and it's it feels very unsafe and overwhelming. So I'm wondering if the techniques that you describe in the book have a way to counter that or to protect with that. Yeah, two very main and important parts of that. One is a deep respect for the dissociated part, just like real gentle appreciation. For example, somebody's like, I'm, I'm dissociated, I don't feel my body. And then you might even inquire something like, oh, where is this part of you that's not here, that, that, uh, that is far away? And beginning to create, like, is it on the moon? Is it, you know, in Idaho? Where is this part? And to begin to create warmth and welcome and appreciation and gentleness for the dissociated part is a really radical act that has remarkable healing powers in and of itself. And then, and then the other, because it so honors, you know, the survival strategies, which really need to be honored. I guess there are three parts. One, the second part is is IPNB learning about dissociation, because once people begin to anchor themselves in an understanding that their brain always makes sense and that their behavior always makes sense, then there's a relaxation that comes where they may be suffering from trauma from the original experience of trauma, but they're no longer beating themselves up for suffering from the trauma. So it's a very grounding piece of, the, of, of possible work mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. folks who are struggling with dissociation. And just as an aside, my favorite thing to hear when I'm speaking is for people to come up to me at the end or call me and say, I make sense. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And then the third piece is to make sure that there's, and many people write about this, so this is something I think almost all therapists do, but the creation of a safe space, you know, the creation of a, of a space that, that, that has warmth in it, whether it's companion animals, whether it's, you know, like a Beauty and the Beast kind of place where the walls themselves create warmth and tending and no humans have to be involved. Or whether it's, a, you know, a, a home made of glass where you could see intruders coming from miles away. There's a total safety. Or a home made of st- complete, you know, like three feet, uh, a concrete uh, structure made of three feet thick walls so that no one can get in. A place without any doors or windows. People will create different kinds of safe spaces that allow their bodies have some sense of relaxation. So th- these are the three main things I think that are that are important: the radical mm-hmm. welcome of dissociation, the radical and warm welcome of dissociation, the um, IPNB education, and the creation of safe spaces. All are very important grounding points. To and then of course many people have different techniques they use for for breathing and looking at the room, for feeling the body, you know, for feeling into the feet. Different things for different people will permit a sense of being able to come back, I think, from dissociation. How is it to hear these, Laura? I think so. And um, the first time you said IPNB, I was like, what did she say? And then the second time I heard it, I said, okay, interpersonal neurobiology. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a <laughs> lot of words. Yeah. And syllables. But um, yeah, that, that is kind of what I thought. And I like what you said. It's just sort of affirms for me that that's the way I was interpreting it as well. And I'm not missing anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I love that in your book, you know, speaking of that warmth and gentleness, the way you talk about dissociation. Mm-hmm. is really not not the way it's most often really discussed. You know, it's often discussed as, while it may be recognized as a a useful method of coping and a survival mechanism that really helped the person, it's also sort of seen as a very deeply pathological way of being mm-hmm. in mental health. And I like the way... Not that I think it is pathological, but, you know, often that's the way that people who live with a lot of dissociation feel about it and the way that sometimes um, mental health practitioners also treat it. And the way you talk about it is just so gentle and so, I guess, just affirming Mm. that this is just how things are and here's what we're going to do to help it feel less out of control, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, it is part having that attitude, you know, is 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 really a part of the resonating self witness, because because part of the healing journey with dissociation is the awakening of the part of the self that can go, oh, of course you are dissociated, and just be so gentle, you know, a learning of gentleness with the self that creates a kind of a sigh 
in in the dissociated self and lets there be, you know, a relaxation. Uh, a, a part of what we're working with here is is the is the incredible contribution that Stephen Porges has made to understanding our nervous systems. He is the man who wrote uh, the completely unreadable book, uh, Polyvagal Theory. <laughs> 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 but he has uh, done a lot of YouTube videos and uh, and and work since then. And and um, I keep looking for a new book that that will be a little more uh, 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 easy to read. Um, but um, he uh, speaks about the hierarchy of safety that when that when we are when we when we have a sense of being safe and mattering, which is such an interesting concept. I mean, being safe so often seems like it's just about physical safety, like it's about some kind of protection. Or, but when we not only have a sense of being safe, but when we add to that the sense that we actually matter to the group that we're with, that our needs matter, that our voice, that people want to hear our voice, then the nervous system of humans shifts gear into what Stephen Porges calls social engagement, where all of the most finely nuanced capacities that we have for social interaction are turned on. The fine muscles of the face turn on. The muscles of the middle ear tighten to the sound range of the human voice. The muscles of the eye focus on human faces. All of a sudden, we're made for nuance. And um, it changes our heart rate variability. It changes the way that our blood picks up oxygen. It's like our whole body starts running on oxygen instead of having to run on, on cortisol and, um, or on adrenaline. And, and so part of what we're doing with this radical gentleness towards the dissociated self is we're beginning to create this, this double delight of being safe and mattering, that the dissociation matters, that the, the voice of the dissociated part is welcome, is it's a, it's a radical nervous system act that invites people toward social engagement. Yeah, just so many, so many thoughts and ideas coming to mind as you talk about that with, you know, just social engagement can't be online when you don't feel safe and you don't feel you matter. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I think can be really hard for people is feeling that they've always been alone, that they're self-sufficient, but yet they feel isolated and, and they don't think that they'll ever feel connected with other people. So there's like this loneliness and I don't need anyone, you know, mm -hmm. feeling kind of coexisting and it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Would, would, one of the things I like to say to people when they're working with that particular double bind is something like, would your body like acknowledgement? that you have not had very many experiences of people being safe. Yeah. I love discovering what are the questions we can ask that make bodies say yes. Because when bodies say yes, we know that they have a sense of being resonated with. And so we know that they're having the neural connections nourished and nurtured that we would like them to have. 
And one of the things asking someone, would your body like acknowledgement of, you know, I mean, just people don't normally talk that way. I love that you have these, these concepts in your book and that people can kind of, and I guess that's the beauty of what you're talking about with how language really matters, that if you speak in that gentle way, that's so affirming and warm and resonant, it opens up new possibilities. Mm, it really does. It really takes us out of staticness into fluidity. And that's such an exciting place to be able to go with people because you never know what they're going to say or do. <laughs> you don't know what's going to come next. It's <laughs> Right. Yes, it's a, it's a magical surprise. <laughs> so I have a question for you for people who are listening and saying, wow, like, I really want to check that book out. This stuff is amazing. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you would like people, I assume both professionals and non-professionals to be able to find this book and, and read it. But I'm curious about how you see people using it because it has the guided meditations written out. And so in a practical way, what, what do you think people should do with it? How, how they use it? Well, there are, there's free downloads of all the, of me reading all the meditations on the, on the book's website. The book is www.yourresonantself.com without any spaces in between it. So you don't even have to buy the book. You can just go and get the meditations. Oh. Yeah. So those are available to be used uh, on your pod, on your little phone or whatever, smartphone, whatever you want to put them on, on your computer. So that's that's one possibility. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the book itself is available, you know, in hard copy and in Kindle. And then, and then there are, I'm starting to create online courses as well for people who, don't who who just want to be able to dive into the material and have some you know handouts some worksheets and study questions and and there's wow. also yeah there's somebody on Facebook putting together little study groups for people <laughs> oh kind of, wow that's yeah, kind of fun yeah I love that because some people can read and take everything in and some people they need to have it be more interactive yeah, and play with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Try that's it so wonderful. So how would people find your, your offerings? I know you said your resident self.com. Is that where everything you have going on is? Um, I have a website called empathybrain.com that has my retreats and classes and online classes. And so you, I think you can find it through, through your resident self.com or you can go right to empathybrain.com. Oh, you can, yeah, look for Empathy Brain on Facebook. And mm, writing all this down. Yeah. So I will put all of this in the show notes and I'll be checking it out myself. I mean, what you're doing is amazing. And just the impact is unfathomable how, how much this can help, you know, healing people one-on-one when their relationships with other people and the healing that happens there and it spreads. Oh, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on therapy chat today. Oh my goodness. This is awesome.
Very happy. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Sarah Payton. Isn't she special? She's just so different. I love her gentle way and her beautiful book. And her guided meditations are so lovely. And I've used them myself and with clients and found them to be very helpful as well. So I have no doubt that her courses and webinars are equally helpful. And I certainly recommend her book. So thanks so much for taking the time to listen to Therapy Chat today. Catch you later. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.